Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Ye podcast. I am, as always, Chris Ye. And in my continuing series of coverage of the U.S. presidential election of 2020, I am delighted to be joined today by an old friend, maybe one of the most insightful people I know, especially around issues surrounding this election. That is John Robb. He is many, many things, a military veteran, an internet pioneer, an author, and one of the deepest thinkers I know. John Robb, please say hello. Uh, Hello. Thanks, Chris. So, John, you and I have known each other for a long time. Let's try to give the listeners some context. There's a couple of elements of your life that are particularly interesting, provided you're allowed to talk about them. And one of them is the fact that you had a very distinguished military career where you worked with JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, very famous now. And I remember you mentioning that you did a lot of interesting things. So I don't know what's classified, what is it, but maybe you can fill people in a little bit on what that was like. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, after getting out of the Air Force Academy and going through pilot training, um, I ended up getting into special operations. And um, the area I was pulled into was substantially different than the rest of the military. It It was a tier one counterterrorism unit um, you know, working with Delta and SEAL Team 6 and other units that don't exist. <laughs> um, and um, my job was to smuggle people in and smuggle people out, you know, flying low, flying at night, doing whatever is necessary to get from point A to point B. And um, it's a different kind of job than the, the standard military. Um, typically, if you're a pilot in, in the Air Force, uh, you have to check in before you take off and then after you take off and just before you land and you have a you know very regimented schedule that you have to uh, adhere to. And um, my job was like, you know, here's 20,000 bucks a plane and, and a mission, go get it done. You'll see you in two weeks. And so um, it gave me a different kind of perspective than the standard military guy, more of an outsider's perspective. And um, that helped me when I later got out and, and uh, got into building companies and thinking about uh, the future of warfare. Well, when I hear that, what I'm picturing is every single action movie I've ever seen where they have that ace pilot that gets them in and out. And the good news is, despite your distinguished military career, you didn't end up like any of those pilots who always seem to get blown up, right, as the heroes are running back <laughs> to try to escape. Right, yeah. Um, it's not for lack of trying, though. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm just really lucky. I mean, I lived through three different air, aircraft crashes um, that could have been catastrophic. Uh, you know, a lot of my flying was, you know, very, very low at, at night with very low illumination, um, much lower than the standard military levels. And, and um, you know, when you land on a road in the, in the middle of some uh, developing country and, and you're, you, all the lights are out and it feels like you're landing in a black hole and you, you just kind of know from, you know, little IR beacons, you know, that demarcate the, the box that you're supposed to land and that uh, you're not going to uh, be outside. You're, you're going to be in the right place at the right time, you know, rolling down that road to stop the plane. And the same thing with the takeoff. It's, it's a, um, you have to be really, really good and you have to be really lucky and, um, you know, trust all the other people that you work with. So from the, the crews that I that I flew with, that to the to the shooters that I uh, got in and out of places, 
um, everyone worked together and, and it worked out fine. Now, I just have to ask, how do you end up graduating from the Air Force Academy and then they say, you know what, we want you to be an action hero. What is the process by which you get assigned to something like that? It's, it, it's strange. I mean, I mean, my initial thinking about going to the Air Force Academy was because it was one of the few places with an astronautical engineering degree and I was going to become a, an astronaut, uh, at least my thinking. And about halfway through pilot training, the shuttle blew up and I was like, okay, this program is being put on ice for as far as I can see. And so um, uh, I ended up going into a, a transport piloting on it. C-130s. Um, initially, I was thinking, you know, I was going to go towards uh, fighters and, and then go towards a test pilot school and try to get into the astronaut program. So I ended up using, going with a plane that I could actually travel and go to places. Um, my wife liked that idea. Uh, and um, I spent about a year or so in, in that and they drafted me right out. They just came and plucked me out of my unit and said, do you want to do this? And I thought, okay. And then I spent the next five, six years, you know, working in this, uh, in this hot house. Um, How did they know you would be the right kind of guy with the nerves of steel and, you know, whatever you want to describe it, all these different colorful phrases? Because obviously it can't just be, they're like, oh, let's just pick a guy at random and have him do this hardest thing in the world. Uh, you know, they just, they ask around, they, they go through your resume, they go through, you know, recommendations, and then they interview you and put you through a process of, of winnowing you down. I mean, you know, most of the pilots um, that make it through are, are, you know, pilot training in the Air Force are pretty darn good. I mean, you know, we started off with like 40,000 people applying for the Air Force Academy, about 1,500 got in, 900 graduated, 600 got into pilot training, 300 graduated from pilot training, and just a handful ended up in, in either the fighter units or in special ops. So it was like a narrowing, a funnel. Um, and, uh, getting recruited into a unit like this is just, a, it's a strange process. It's not, it's not, uh, it, you have to have the kind of people that are well suited for it. So that means um, uh, people who are uh, hard to manage, I think. I think that maybe was my best, uh, my best uh, attribute is that, you know, I, w I was a person always looking for more responsibility and willing to, you know, uh, scribble outside the box boxes a little bit or outside the lines. And uh, they wanted a person like that. They didn't want somebody who was like only comfortable with, you know, regimented procedure. And, and a lot of military guys are like that. I'm picturing in my mind the recruiting scene from Men in Black with Will Smith, where they've got the best of the best and they're all writing within the lines. And he's the one who's willing to do whatever it takes to succeed. It's that right. entrepreneurial spirit. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. A lot of guys who are, uh, very used to having the military tell them what to do, uh, don't do well in this kind of job or didn't do well in, in special operations. They were always uh, concerned that they were doing something that they shouldn't be doing or um, wanting to ask for advice or permission. And you just, you couldn't do that. You just had to get it done. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. But uh, I mean, the downside is for me, and I was on Beeper for five years or so, and, and gone 220 days out of the year, you know, on the road. Um, and when I wasn't, I was, I was either scheduling or, 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 uh, doing, uh, lots and lots of practice of different, different, uh, things that we did. And, um, you know, I was watching my kids grow, you know, grow up in snapshots, you know, every, every couple of months I see, a, you know, another snapshot of 
So I thought, okay, if I was going to be really serious about being a dad, I can't do this full time forever. So it's time to do something else. Well, there you go. And the next stop along the journey. And again, I think we'll see this through line of this entrepreneurial spirit, this willingness to, to take risks, to color outside the lines. You do your grad student, uh, your grad school days at Yale in management, and then you join Forrester Research right as the internet is really starting to hit. And so you have a front seat for the dot-com revolution. Yeah, it, um, it's a lot of luck involved. You know, I was planning to go out into the, become an airline pilot, but, you know, when I got out there, none of the airlines were hiring. So I thought, okay, I have to do something different. So on a whim, I applied to Yale and I got in right away and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go do this. And then I had a great time there and I got exposed to the internet early on. And um, I saw by happenstance an article in, in the bi-monthly Wired magazine at the time saying, you know, with an interview with George Colony, he said, uh, you know, what do you do all day? They asked George and he said, uh, he's a CEO of Forrester. Uh, he goes, I, you know, I sit with my feet up on the windowsill looking out over Harvard Square thinking about the future of technology. And I thought, okay, I want to do that. I want to do that. And so, uh, I wrote them, um, again, on a whim, thought, you know, this is out of my area. I'm not, I don't have a technical background per se. I was astro, but I wasn't um, in the IT business. And uh, my writing style happened to be exactly like Forrester's writing style. It was a paragraph, bullet, bullet, bullet. You know, it was you know, exceedingly structured in, 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 the, in, in its approach. It wasn't like an essay form. Um, and um, they loved it. And so they put me through a really tough winnowing process. You know, I went through you know, three one-on-one interviews and then I did a 15 on one, uh, you know, break the analyst interview where they had all these like super smart analysts and Forrester at the time was just a really small organization. And they all attacked me for two hours on a paper I wrote, basically a, a small brief, two pager on, uh, Iridium, which is the, you know, the satellite uh, telephone system from Motorola. And uh, it went, went great. I was able to hold my ground for two hours against all these people trying to, you know, take me out. And the cool thing about the, the final thing that, that cinched it uh, is that George Colony at the very end, he said, you know, uh, what's the uh, uh, data rate on Iridium? And I said, uh, 1800. He goes, ah, oh, it's dead. So he just knew that it, without any you know, scalable data capacity, it was focused on, on voice, that it wasn't built for what was coming. It wasn't built for uh, succeeding in the marketplace. And I was able to answer him and, and nail it right there. Um, so I was okay. I was at Forrester. Um, so every internet company happened to come through my doors. I, you know, I ended up becoming their first internet analyst. I wrote the first internet reports. I wrote the portal report and, I call them navigation hubs at the time and um, ranking the navigation sites back in you know, early 96 before they went public, interviewed all the top people there and which browser, which server. Um, and then I wrote a report uh, called uh, Personal Broadcast Networks, which was uh, this idea of everyone publishing, every individual publishing and subscribing to each other in this big network. Uh, rather than going through websites, they would go from desktop to desktop. Um, and that ended up getting people really excited because it was kind of laid out the, the groundwork for a kind of social networking. And um, 
but no one knew how to build it at the time. <laughs> so, and uh, it seemed like a natural. This was like a big think idea. But um, anyway, it was a fun time. I got to tell you, I had a similar experience back when I was an undergrad at Stanford. This was in the mid 1990s. One of the things I said, again, we're encouraged to think big sometimes in these very speculative student projects. One of the things I said is what we really need is some new medium through which ordinary people can actually publish their thoughts and express what they're feeling because this is something that almost nobody has in their life. I mean, back then it was letters to the editor and that was it. And I felt like the human need for expression was being underserved. Now, again, I had no idea what was going to come. This was before I really thought about the internet as, as a way where this could be instantiated. But it's been amazing to see those instincts that you had, that I had, play out over the subsequent decades. Yep. So there you are at Forrester, and you're writing about internet companies, but then you actually go ahead and take the leap and become an entrepreneur, and that's around the time that you and I met each other. So what convinced you to leave Forrester? And then I'll tell one or two stories about how you and I met. Oh, wow. Um, Well, it's seeing all these companies take off and get big, and there was lots of money to be made. And... um, you know, getting out there and actually putting into practice a lot of the stuff I was actually talking about or writing about while at Forrester. And um, my reports were, you know, pretty popular and people liked them, but you know, actually getting out there and building a company was a, a cool challenge. And I uh, partnered with Alex Stein and, and uh, your friend and from uh, with D.H. Lawrence. D.E. Shaw. D.E. Shaw is right. more of a famous author than uh, Yeah, right. I was thinking, yeah. Here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why DH hit me there. Um, yeah, and the uh, and uh, Julio Gomez and we started a, a company focused on uh, getting the big banks and brokerages online, and that was right in you know 2007, just as the things you know finance started to make the shift. Um, really early days for that, and it was a it was a pretty cool experience, you know, starting a company from scratch and growing it to what I think we got 50 million in revenue by the time I I left. And you were a critical part of it because I still remember the way that I got involved and met you is that Alex Stein, my dear friend, who was also my first manager, he was the first person I worked for after I graduated from Stanford. He had brought me in to work with you on a consulting project and we were charting out the the Gomez website and thinking about what the navigation was going to be and, and what all the different elements had to be there. And I remember at the time you were telling me, you know, one of the things that we really need to do is to build up this performance network because we need to be able to measure how the websites are responding, the web pages need to load at a certain time, otherwise people are gonna go away. And so we're building out our own performance network. And that actually, I believe, ended up being the core element of Gomez that was eventually sold for about $300 million. Yep. yeah, that, that ended up being the thing that lasted the, over the long term. Uh, it, you know, we had this ranking system, and we had a we had a way of making money, helping people find brokers and banks. Um, that overnight became a multi million dollar business by itself. And then, um, in order to kind of scale this and make it make it the you know this venture and turn it into something that uh, just you know made money on Sundays kind of thing, is that uh, we needed something automated, something that uh, you know, people could, you know, sign into as a service and, 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 and 
get real-time information on, on how things were operating. And this uh, performance network started with us uh, borrowing some software from a tiny company um, and using it to, you know, ourselves to test the transaction systems of these different uh, banks and brokers and folding that information into our ranking system of you know, who's, who has the best site. Um, that got onto CNBC and that got big and we uh, ended up uh, pushing to create our own. And, and I took a lot of heat trying to you know, raise the extra money necessary to build a performance system, um, and, uh, which was a big project, but we ended up doing it. Uh, it, you know, it was like 54 cities around the world, you know, six continents, 23 different internet backbones, testing the, the, the transaction systems of uh, all the big um, banks and brokerages every five minutes. So, uh, you know, if somebody signed in from Switzerland while skiing, you know, you could find out whether or not they could see their site. So you didn't want to lose that whale, that $200 million account, just because they couldn't get in. And um, yeah, it worked out good. It, it's, it was a, it was a tough process, you know, getting, getting something built like that. But uh, it, once it got going, it just, it just spun money. Uh, it was very efficient. It uh, did real-time data replication from all those you know, different servers to the central server. It was, it was always, you know, real time. It was, it was a great, great system. And as I mentioned, the core value that somebody eventually paid for when they acquired Gomez. Oh yeah. I mean, it, you know, I had people that helped me build this or, you know, we really took the technical burden was like Dan Sheridan. I mean, he was amazing. I mean, and it's funny because he came in as, as a kind of a, a junior guy. He was my research associate at Forrester and he came in and, and filled this technical role and ended up becoming a, a, a CTO. Uh, I remember Dan is a great guy and yet another great example of your eye for talent. Yep. It, it worked out nicely. And, um, yeah, they, it's kind of cool to build a company that could stand through, you know, get through the uh, you know hard days after after the the internet crash, mm -hmm. and and then end up selling itself for a considerable chunk of change. Now, from there, you went on to another pioneering company, Userland. That was Dave Weiner's company, as I recall. Yeah, so I was looking around for something else to do, and and you know, I was having gone through the, the initial launch of the of that. Of Gomez, I wanted to do something different, and I, I found uh, yeah Dave Weiner's Userland. Yeah, he was a uh, he was doing some pretty cool stuff with uh, social networking back in two thousand one, and um, so I started uh, working with him, and I ended up running the company because he got you know sick there, um, and all the early stuff from social networking, I mean, pretty much built at Userland. It, you know, the RSS spec, you know, we published out that. Uh, which is really simple syndication from subscribing to each other. You know, the reverse chronological order, time date stamping on your posts. Um, you know, when you looked at an RSS feed coming from all the different sites you subscribe to, it looked just like a Twitter flow. Um, and that you could take any one of those things and comment on it. And, it, and the blog that you published out of uh, our product radio is looked just like Facebook. So it's kind of a cool thing. Um, but, you know, we're, you know, it's like a, it's a, Interesting lesson for me, it wasn't really the quality of the ideas at the time, it, um, it was very early. Um, and you know, what I found is that it was so early that people just couldn't see the benefit of social networking. I mean, they just, they had these cognitive filters on and they couldn't imagine actually doing it. And it, you know, getting people to 
switch over was a really laborious process. Um, but once we got, you know, some people at you know, different organizations to sign on, like NPR, we got them to sign on. At New York Times, when they signed on, we cut a deal with them to put their stories uh, into our feed, you know, exclusive to radio at Userland. Uh, you know, it was a big deal. It just zoomed the whole thing. Um, but uh, boy, just so if you've never really been truly early trying to get people to adopt something that ends up becoming big, you don't really know how tough it is to actually get people to actually admit that or see the value in what you're talking about. Um, well, you know, why would I blog? Why would I put my thoughts up? Why would I uh, want to subscribe to other people? All those basic questions got to have to be answered. And it's like the old saying goes, how can you tell the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in their backs? Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, yeah, it's kind of cool. I mean, we were too early. Um, the company had too much hair on it for being around too long. Um, so and, it was really again, hard to raise money, but it was, again, uh, you know, when you think about it, uh, part of it is just, as it turns out, RSS did not end up becoming the dominant paradigm. The ideas of RSS have proved incredibly powerful. Like you said, the reverse chronological, the ability to follow, but as it turns out, the, success, the, the successes are people who created their own walled gardens were able to achieve massive scale and generate network effects as a result. Uh, oh, yeah, no, definitely. The open, as the, the open architecture of RSS. Oh, yeah, our, our mistake was thinking that it would be um, desktop-driven, it would be open, and people, you know, it, we believed in decentralization, and that was the big mistake. That was our big flaw. Yeah. Um, if we had put it all under one roof, and run it as a, as a closed system, we would have been a lot more successful early on. Well, again, just- Things would be different. <laughs> just, and again, I, I, I personally, I'm with you. I regret the fact that it went down that pathway. I've always, I still use RSS. I know very few people do anymore. I still use it. Although again, it's sort of creeping lower and lower and lower in terms of usage. But when I look back, now we've looked at your career from the days flying secret agents into locations, you know, $20,000 in a plane, find a way to get it done, to the pioneering days of the internet, to the pioneering days of social media. Again, you were out in front. And then you were out in front yet again, because after that, you began writing and, and really focusing on your career as an author and a guru in the area of both military theory and some of these ideas that you've been exploring for quite some time now with Global Gorilla. So maybe you can take folks through the basic way to think about your life now as an author, thought leader, and theorist. Okay. Um, well, one of the benefits of, of working at a social networking startup like I, I was at is that I started a weblog really early and I put my name on it and um, ended up turning that into what I called the Global Gorillas blog in like 2003. Um, started writing about what I saw happening on the ground in Iraq. I thought it was different uh, than what the, uh, the standard military analysts were uh, portraying it as. And um, I saw some threads of, you know, my experience in the software and the special ops world um, Coming to you know coming to fruition in, in, in a new type of warfare that was being fought in, in Iraq, and um, you know we were geared up for the traditional type of insurgency, um, and 
we weren't fighting the traditional type of insurgency. Um, the traditional type is, is, is still hierarchical. Um, you know, there's a command cell and a political cell and a military cell, and, and they all uh, work together in, in, in uh, uh, running the insurgency. And that the way you roll it up is you, you know, like a pyramid is you start at the bottom and, and then you flip the bottom one of one of the bottom cells and you go up to the next level and the next level next level and you get up to the top and then you take out the leadership cells and it's over well in iraq uh there were 70 different groups um and then somehow they all seem to be able to work together uh and if you tried to roll them up you'd get a, you know one or two layers up in the in a, in, in a group's organization and that would be the end of that group but there would be 69 more and they were all coming at this from different motivations. There were you know, a bunch of different flavors of jihadis and a bunch of different nationalist groups, some pro-Bathists, some anti-Bathists, some pro-Saddam, some anti-Saddam um, criminal groups, et cetera, et cetera, different you know, uh, ethnic groups uh, and uh, religious groups. So it's like, how did they all work together? And uh, what I saw was you know, a lot of the themes of open source software development occurring in, in, in in warfare, uh, open source organizational techniques. Um, and they coordinated a lot of their activities using kind of a stigmergic communication system where uh, if one group made an attack that was successful uh, and it was covered by the press, uh, the rest of the groups would see that it was successful, both in selection of the target and the methodology, and they would repeat it, replicate it. Um, and there wasn't a formal declaration that that should happen or it didn't come down a hierarchy. It was just copied horizontal. Um, and we saw, you know, extremely high innovation rates and in et cetera. And I was writing about this all the time and um, got some notice, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times and ended up writing a book about it. That I, from what I've been told, it went up to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and a lot of the top people who were running the, uh, the war in Iraq. Um, and uh, so I end up ended up becoming a um, speaker and a consultant and, and somebody who went to all the different three letter agencies and, and all the different branches of the DOD and, and gave speeches and talks and, and uh, you know, ran workshops to help people get their heads around this new type of warfare. Because it was completely different from everything that their structured, well-defined world had led them to be used to, and it was almost impossible for them to understand. It was a different world, a brave new war, as you put it. Right, and that was the name of the book, uh, you know, Brave New War, and it um, it was really hard for people to get their heads around, but, you know, the, the, the good thing for me was that when I had people who were, you know, actually out there in the field, uh, when they, getting their hands dirty and actually dealing with this, you know, fighting that war, and they would come back and say, that was right on. That book really described it. Unlike all the other stuff, that one really hit home. And uh, so I knew I was telling the story that needed to be told and, and doing it in a way that, that allowed people to come up with solutions. Now, I got to tell you, I like to think of myself as a well-read man. I know most words. But there was a word you used back there that maybe I misheard or maybe I just don't know. And I hope you can explain it for me and the listeners. Stigmergic, I think you said? Uh, stigmergy or stigmergic communications? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So... Yeah, it's like a, uh, it's the way insects communicate, all right? And um, uh, they do it without being told, you know, uh, they, this is how they, you know, get uh, attack big problems without 
having you know specific instructions on how to do that. So, for instance, uh, if an ant finds a food source, when it brings the food back to the nest, it will leave a chemical trail saying, "I found food," and that chemical trail would then be used by other ants to find the, the food source. And and they would, whenever they uh, came back, they would add additional uh, chemical reinforcement to that trail. Uh, and that would be called stigmergic communication. You can see the same thing in flocks in, in terms of movement and, and, and positioning within, within, a, within a flock. It's a, uh, a way a swarm communicates, a way a decentralized organization communicates. So you don't have to have a hierarchical command structure in order to get tackle big projects. So in the case of gorillas, it would be, I make an attack, I, you know, I throw something against the wall, see if, it, see if it works. And if it works, it gets coverage in the press, it gets coverage online. I take videos of it, I put it up online. Everyone sees that, they copy it. And the more they copy and the more success that they have, the greater the reinforcement of that signal. Is that clear enough or? No, I think that's perfect. It's also another great example of your erudition and breadth of knowledge because it's not very often that somebody I interview uses a word I don't know. Okay. No, I just, you know, when I, when I, uh, I dig around for concepts that I find interesting, it's like when I read a book, I, it's hard for me to read a nonfiction book in, in, in its entirety. I, I ended up like slicing it apart, just finding the concepts and pulling them out and trying to, you know, avoid all that in-between language. It just slows me down. You know, trying to get the the 500-page book into a five-page, you know, summary of the the core ideas that I could use later. Yeah, sadly, authors have been trained that they are not going to get paid for the five-page summary, so they have to produce the 500-page book, even if the five-page summary would be superior. I know this is a, kind of the opposite approach I use with the the, the uh, report service I write right now. I try to put everything into a five-page summary. Well, let's talk Structure. about that. Let's talk about that report service because people who've been listening to this have probably been thinking to themselves, man, this guy's insightful. How do I get to his insights? How do I get more of John Robb? So what is the way they can do that? Okay. Uh, well, I started a, uh, a report on Patreon called the Global Gorillas Report. Um, and you can find it using John Robb, J-O-H-N-R-O-B-B, Patreon, and it would bring you to that site. Um, and I write a report every month, and I have a Discord with a lot of smart people on it talking about politics and warfare. Um, and I have a, a worksheet that I do, kind of live thing that I work through on it's a Google Doc that people can add to and ask questions about and comment on, um, which was really useful during COVID. And then um, occasional brief and podcasts that I put up and those are usually hosted by other people like you. <laughs> and um, cause I've found that you know, it's easier to be on other people's podcasts uh, than to produce one on my own. Um, it is a pain, it, you know, but it's something that the rest of us are grateful for because that means we can have you on and boost our own listenership. Exactly. I, it, why compete in something that you're not the best at, right? And um, uh, well, what I focus on is the intersection of warfare, politics, and technology. So that kind of sweet spot. And the themes I focus on are the kind of 
the open source warfare that I looked at in Iraq has now went to open source protests and we saw them topple governments in Egypt and Tunisia and other places. Uh, then they morphed into protests in the US, which we saw in Occupy, even the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, even protests that toppled the, the governor of Puerto Rico and other places, other things. Uh, and then uh, most recently, we saw open source politics emerge in the states and, and with Trump's election, and it overran the Republican Party, open yeah. source political movement. And um, it uh, it's morphing still. It's, it's changing, and it's starting to go from you know, a very loose system to something that has more durability and what I call a, a network tribalism. And well, this, that's an entirely different beast. This is something I want to dive it deep in on because obviously Donald Trump is the phenomenon of our time, both here in America and around the world. It has in many ways altered the course of politics here in the United States. I feel like it is very different from what came before it. So walk us through, what were your thoughts when Donald Trump began to emerge? What were the different techniques he was using consciously or unconsciously? And what are going to be the effects? Well, first of all, I'm assuming he'll leave office, but maybe you can fill us in on that and where things are gonna go from here. Okay, well, let's go back to uh, 2015, 2016, uh, when this kicked off. I mean. I saw him in the you know, fall of 2015. I thought, okay, that's the guy, at least for the Republican side, um, that's going to run with it. And the way I think he resonated was that he was the guy that, that uh, came in from the outside and was adopting a lot of the uh, kind of rhetoric that, that I think had a lot of appeal with people who were very disillusioned with the, the system, mm -hmm. uh, the performance of the kind of the post-Cold War establishment. Um, I personally had thought the post-Cold War establishment had really screwed up. I mean, on, and it was monumental screw-ups, and it, it wasn't being addressed in the press, and people wouldn't even look at, look at it as a real screw-up. It's like, for instance, like China, um, you know, from a national security perspective, it was like we won the Cold War against a communist dictatorship, hard-fought 40 years of, of toil and backbreaking effort. And then no enemies to be seen, as far as the eye could see. And then 2000, we decide to start subsidizing, effectively subsidizing uh, a communist dictatorship. And 20 years later, now we have a technological peer competitor. Uh, and the, and it, you know, Z is a you know, president for life and it's cracking down across the country and it's like expanding and we created a, you know a, another cold war out of nothing it didn't have to happen that way it didn't have to develop that way um and it happened so much faster than we should should have actually seen but you know it was like that kind of big failure and then instead we went to the middle east in the middle east for oil but oil ended up becoming not the thing that we should be worried about it became uh something that we produced you know through shale and, and and other means and it wasn't the critical resource that we should have been seeking and then, you know, the financial crisis, I think the 2008 financial crisis was the real kicker is when we didn't prosecute anyone after that. Mm. You know, it was clear there was lots of fraud, I mean, fraud throughout the whole system. People were selling, the big banks were selling this crap to pension funds and to others when they knew it was crap. They knew it was an investment grade. 
and and on and on and on. I mean, you know, people were trying to extend it to make it worse, and and no one went to jail for it. It was twenty trillion dollar plus damage to the economy. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, no one was held accountable. So when that kind of stuff happens, it was like this big anger, and Trump tapped into it, but he tapped into it in an open source way, and uh, there was a large group of people online. You know, I was interviewed on the uh, the Reddit, the Donald, which is you know, four or five hundred thousand people on it. I think eight hundred thousand now. Um, of people who are constantly coming up with new memes and new new ideas and new things that they were implementing. Um, it's kind of like a testing place. And that information, you know, percolated up and got to Trump. And Trump was very quick to go find that information and use it and employ it in the campaign. And that worked great as a maneuver strategy for him to, you know, uh, jump from topic to topic every couple of days, uh, keeping the opposition unbalanced, unable to respond effectively. Um, you know, there's fast transients that maneuver strategy uh, makes it impossible for the opponent to think clearly. Um, so, you know, that, that open source methodology, you know, I was writing about it saying, hey, you know what, they don't see him as a traditional candidate, they see him as a weapon. They're putting him into office to disrupt the establishment that they see as opposition, as something that, you know, they're running a system that's trying to hurt them and damage them and kill them. Um, they were, you know, trying to big wake up call, send this weapon to Washington. So when he had uh, problems, when he had like the Access Hollywood tapes, you know, that would normally sink a, a, a candidate, but I was like, I don't think that's gonna make a difference because they're, they're not looking at him as an individual, as a candidate based on moral qualities. They're looking at him as a weapon against the establishment. And that's exactly what happened. And you can see that throughout its entire presidency is, is popularity, at least according to all the polling, was, was pretty much steady at 42%. Now, didn't didn't budge. One of the things that's fascinating about this, and I, I think that you know, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me, is that there was a movement prior to Trump or Trumpism that was a reaction to the financial crisis, which was the Tea Party movement. And yet somehow yep. that became co-opted and defanged. And yet Trump was able to come in and overtake the Republican Party. So what was it that allowed the Republican Party to co-opt the Tea Party, but in turn found itself co-opted by Trump? Well, it's the uh, primary process. And Trump saw that. And he, he could actually directly interact with those people through Twitter. And through Facebook, but mostly through Twitter initially, um, and uh, that allowed him to, you know, bypass the standard filters or the media filters that would have prevented him from from uh, interacting with them. Uh, and you know, it it was as much a takeover of the Republican Party as it was a takeover of the country. Uh, you know, the Republican Party was completely overrun. That's right. Um, they were looking at this like, what the heck is going on? Just like, you know, US military in 2003 and four, it's like, what the heck is going on? You know, how do we make sense of it? How do, what, what do we do? Um, it's not operating the way it should. And um, I'm sure my bark was thinking the same thing. You know, usually when we bust some heads, it, you know, the protest breaks up, but it just wasn't operating that way. We can't arrest the people, enough people. We arrest the leaders, there's more leaders. Um, 
in this case, uh, that direct communication channel and the fact that he was willing to use the, you know, the innovation that was coming out from below um, to outpace the opposition uh, and to let them communicate uh, horizontally through Facebook to you know, push them forward, uh, right. push the campaign forward. I mean, Facebook is like the, you know, from the people who are, you know, the establishment's perspective, Facebook was kind of like this big black hole. Uh, they can see Trump on Twitter, but they can't see what's going on in all of these different communities because that, you know, 5,000 friend limit. Um, you know, all these individual communication, you know, uh, pathways of communication, this crab-like propagation of, of information, uh, it wasn't something that uh, anyone in the, the opposition campaign could see happening. And if you were tuned into it, I was, I tried to get a, uh, an equal number of people who were for Trump an equal number, you know, for uh, Clinton and then all the other little uh, libertarian campaigns and everything else. So I got to see all of the information flow and uh, yeah, the, uh, the Clintons didn't even see that operating on Facebook. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, kind of this open source politics was it was uh, transformative. I mean, it transformed the country. Uh, you know, Trump was maybe an anomaly, but I think it was part of a larger trend. I mean, it, you know, much of my writing is about you know how technology changes the way we think and it changes the way we organize ourselves socially. And uh, this was an inevitable development. I mean, how it actually did it in its particulars is, is uh, unique to the situation and to the people involved. But uh, the overall trend is pretty clear. Yeah, and if I think about it, it, comes, it calls to mind the classic statement of generals always fighting the last war. And what we saw is that Trump, as you pointed out, had this bottom-up strategy, was drawing on the creativity of this immense network and was reaching people directly through social media, through this network, and disintermediating what was previously the grounds of competition, which was to say the networks, and especially the cable networks and the punditarati or what have you, that had been used to having the kingmaker role. And you could see the panic in their voices and in what they were writing as they said, how is this Trump guy doing this? How we're, we're saying he's done, but he's not done. He keeps coming. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The, the uh, internet allowed Trump to, and, and this open source political insurgency to route around the, the media. Now the um, interesting question becomes what happens, and this is the classic last scene in the graduate or the last scene in the candidate, which is, what now? Trump finds himself president of the United States of America, and a technique and set of tactics and strategies designed for insurgency now need to somehow be applied as the actual president. So how do you think things went in his first term? Oh, well, it wasn't meant to be a, a presidency to, to rule. It was meant to disrupt, and it did a great job of that. Um, they put him in office as a weapon and, and disrupt the establishment. And that, that happened. Um, you know, day after day, week after week. And despite all of that disruption, mm -hmm. if it wasn't for COVID, it was pretty clear that Trump would have had one on a landslide last fall. 
And even even with COVID, if he'd taken the right approach, he could have also won in a landslide. At least yeah. that's what I believe. Yeah, I mean, I, I as much as people think it would have been a lot different with with Clinton in office if COVID hit, um, I'm not sure it would have been that different. I mean, all the the core structural elements of what made it so bad in the U.S. Um, and in Europe are still in place. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have shut our borders early. The CDC still would have screwed up its first batch. We still would have had monopoly uh, production rights that during uh, February uh, that would have uh, prevented other public health labs from producing anything, uh, any testing. Um, and we would have been running blind and uh, during the period where New York was ramping up and we still would have said uh, to the public, don't wear masks when uh, we didn't have enough masks uh, available for the first responders. And the, the PPE would have still been produced in, in China and we still would have had, they still would have had a moratorium on exporting it you know, out of China and we would have had the shortages. So. Um, and, and when Clinton would have said in June to start wearing masks, uh, there would have been a lot of resistance to that, probably a lot more than what we're seeing right now, just because she's Clinton. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't think we would have seen much of a difference in the, in, in the COVID response. Um, but the, um, yeah, if he had changed his tack on it, it might have done better. I, I do think that, that the whole COVID consensus early on was, was a lost opportunity for all of us. Absolutely. To, to do something where everybody agreed that we wanted to get rid of it and stop it. And um, we were you know, going to a remote work. Thousands of companies were working on that without even having any government uh, orders to do so. Uh, people were stopping they weren't traveling as much, they weren't flying as much. All the numbers were dropping off due to individual action. And information was percolating everywhere. It was, everyone was researching everything. Um, and we all wanted to do something, but nobody in government is ready for, and nobody in any kind of leadership position in the US is ready to lead kind of an open source consensus that could have been done online and, and actually put the country to work solving the problem. Yeah. Rather than dictating, you know, top-down public health orders from a scientific elite and then have it percolate down, um, because I think they would have gotten as wrong as all the experts were on that. Uh, all the uh, leverage that we saw prior to the financial crisis wasn't a risk. That we, you know, the one in ten thousand year event, you know, that kind of crap. Exactly. You know, oh, our models say this is not a problem. Oh yeah, as we start to dig into those public health models, you start, you know you got to see all that how the sausage was made, and it's it's a pretty ugly process. Um, yeah, I, I I would have I would have loved to have somebody kind of step in front of that, and we have enough people who are in internet savvy that could have potentially done it back in, um, in March when things were kicking off, and do it on YouTube every day, and get the people out and producing cloth masks and, and you know, taking at efforts to kind of isolate the older people and check on the the safety of, of rest homes and the like and getting those get, getting that information out but no we all sat back and waited for the government to do it for us and it didn't work now do you think that there is something about 
the innate American resistance to authority and being told what to do that makes fighting COVID different here than in other countries like, say, a, a South Korea or an Australia or New Zealand or whatnot? Oh, sure. They're a lot more authoritarian and much more, um, <sighs> they're much more homogenous in many ways, many respects. Um, it's, it's, the philosophy of governance is different and here and um, it's the same to a smaller extent it's the same thing in europe it's the reason why uh, we weren't able to eradicate it like we saw across asia is that we weren't willing to close our borders mm -hmm. like hermetically seal them and then seal up any state that has a problem if you have an epicenter in in, in new york all the states connected to New York have to be sealed off until it's gone. And then you open up only then that you start opening up internally. And you, but, you know, trying to do a, a shutdown across all 330 million people in the United States, when most of the places aren't really having any problem at all and telling people to stay home was just brain dead from the get go and not closing the international borders when it's so easy to shift a ticket to go from a hot zone to a, you know, through a intermediary country and come in, it's just dumb. So, um, yeah, we couldn't do that. If we could, you know, had the ability of all the kind of island countries and, and, and uh, more authoritarian countries that, to sh shut our borders, we could have, we could have sealed this up and, and got back to business. But, uh, and, and that's where I think Trump could have really turned this to his advantage because if he had gone for aggressive border closings, Again, one of the things I often tell people is, listen, you know, New Zealand is an island. Taiwan is an island. Well, in some ways, the United States is an island, just a very big one, as long as you close the borders to Canada and Mexico. And even then, North America itself is practically an island. But Trump did not do that, right? He had some rhetoric around closing down the borders, but it was inconsistent. If he had closed down or he had made the case and been able to basically get his opponents to oppose closings, which they did to some extent, right? They called him a xenophobe for closing down China oh, yeah. from China and whatnot. Yep. Then he could have hung that on them and been the person who had sounded the alarm and, and been the responsible one. Yeah, he could have closed the in international borders, but the thing is he couldn't shut down internal borders between states. But so like if, when, but when Wuhan... Even if well, he said, but even with that problem, again, let's let's posit that there would still be a high death rate saying this is really serious. This could be really bad. We all have to sacrifice, you know, putting uh, basically the the expectations on it as opposed to creating expectations. This would just go away. He could have written this out. Most other governments around the world have seen increases in support because they've done the Churchill thing and said, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, sweat and tears. Yeah, he's he's he always gravitates toward the dissent, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, you know, the dissent was. Oh, I, I see. American politics isn't really the right and left that we know about. That I think there's a different kind of spectrum in, in place. It, it's consensus and dissent, and uh, the, the network consensus was shut everything down, and the dissent was that it's not as bad. And it, and I see this as a good dynamic if if we can figure out ways to kind of uh, containerize these 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 different elements uh, and limit them and, and, and make them productive, just like we did with you know, market-based decision-making and, right. and uh, 
uh, bureaucratic decision-making and, and, and tribalism, which is in the form of nationalism, we learned ways to limit it and uh, make use of it. And um, if we could figure out how to do consensus and dissent correctly, we have a new decision-making system that will could mobilize us very, very quickly. And we, you know, dissent function comes in when the consensus is stale and it's wrong. Right. Um, and that it could unwind it if you, so we're, we're, we, we didn't figure out a way to use consensus effectively. Um, Trump went with the dissent too early uh, and we didn't get the response, the COVID response we wanted out, out of the government. Um, and that uh, one of the reactions we're seeing to Trump is that people are starting to try to you know, clamp down on dissent. Like any dissent from the prevailing consensus is a bad thing. And um, I'd, I'd see it a little bit differently. I mean, I kind of like the, I mean, as much as I disagree with like anti-vaxxers or the uh, uh, earth, earth is flat people, I, I don't see them as a threat. I mean, I see this kind of outlier thinking as something that we want to keep in our tool set. Because um, you never know when you, you know, some weird idea comes out of this group that actually ends up being the thing that gets us out of this uh, consent, you know, consensus that, that is going in the wrong direction. Um, well, it's kind of spark that wakes us up. Yeah, well, I think that the way you put it, consensus and dissent, the purpose of dissent is to break through the groupthink, to break right. through the consensus that is wrong. And I think that the real thing that you said that really resonates with me is how do we harness this? Right. Because right now we have a consensus and dissent approach where the two are in such opposition and cannot even agree on the ground rules of how to communicate with each other that it is not nearly as helpful as it could be. Correct. And the, and the consensus isn't doing what it should do. It should make the consensus attractive, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason that you're joining this moral consensus. Usually fights in the moral sphere in terms of warfare terms. Um, uh, but instead, it's using this kind of scarlet letter approach and this, this, this shaming and this attack. And, and, and you know, we're going to disconnect you. We're going we're gonna to get you put out of a job. And we're going to, you know, a consensus that operates that way is, is a dangerous thing because if it can effectively squash dissent, and then it becomes a consensus that, doesn't have any opposition. It will, it can lock itself in, and that's a danger long term. Um, and I just like this. This is the delicate balance because, on the one hand, you don't want to do something that is going to basically say, "This is what you're allowed to think, and this is what you're not allowed to think." Right. right? This, Orwell talked about this. He called it thought crime, and I know a lot of folks on the alt-right have picked it up and used that term. That being said, it's still a term that Orwell created. I'm going to continue, continue to attribute to him. But uh, in terms of thinking about it, I mean, some of the things that people think are just wrong. And the question is, what is the reaction? The reaction cannot be, there's no such thing as objective truth, and it doesn't matter. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. There has to be a balance. Right. I mean, I, I don't see somebody who thinks that the world is flat as a threat. But they're but, wrong. Oh, yeah. I, and the thing is, it, they, they're definitely wrong. But the thing is, it doesn't, it's not a threat that they're wrong. <laughs> you know, it's a, it, it's one of those things, is, if, if it's an important thing, 
important issue and they're wrong about it. I want to figure out ways to make the correct answer so attractive that they want to be over on my side. Yes. Now that and, is the key. I think that if you think about America as a nation that has perhaps the greatest capability to persuade our soft power, our ability to produce entertainment, to get people to do things is the envy of the world. I mean, other people have to compel, we seduce. And yet this ability has not been applied to this problem. Correct. Correct. If we can crack this, if we can crack this, you know, a network decision-making system and how to make it work for us as, you know, being added on to market-based and, and bureaucracy-based and, and, and tribal-based decision-making that we've already tamed to a large extent. If we can make network decision-making work for us, uh, it's a gift to the world. It's something that, you know, a dynamic system that can be extraordinarily creative and, and, and get things done and, and be very responsive to threats as they emerge and changes the in, in environment. I mean, look how fast we mobilized for COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have been it could have been a dramatic and, and amazing response, but it wasn't. Um, we're just not ready for we're doing managing this correctly. But um, the bad thing is that this actually this consensus dissent dynamic uh, can devolve over time if it's frustrated, and um, we're seeing that now to a large extent with you know as it turns into tribalism and uh, kind of a new kind of network tribalism. That's that's a uh, deleterious to our future. Well, that brings us to the topic of the future. So time for some predictions that I'm sure, sure will age beautifully. But what do you see happening with the denouement of this election? What do you believe will happen on January 20th when it's inauguration day? And what do you see happening over the next four years heading into even the 2024 presidential election? Okay, well, I don't doubt that there's been a lot of hanky-panky with the electoral process in terms of getting people to vote and how they vote. And that always happens, probably even more so this election. Um, but I do think that at the end of the day, we'll see a you know, Biden presidency. Um, but the the interesting thing about this is that, you know, the Biden presidency was you know, kind of the establishment returning to power. Um, and you know they were very anti-network decision making. In fact, Biden kind of was taken off the network. You know, they closed down the Twitter account. They they hid from the network. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see in, in AOC's uh, criticisms of, of different candidates on the Democratic slate is that they they weren't spending any money online. They were hiding from it. Um, so. You know, they're very much, you know, of the opinion that the, the network decision making should be shut down. So it's kind of a reaction to very European-like, um, very ostrich-like, mm-hmm. uh, kind of rolling back the clock. Um, that I don't think is going to work. Uh, they should have embraced more of the online stuff, more of what you're seeing, you know, what AOC and others were doing, um, kind of transform the party. Uh, rather than trying to turn it back to the old establishment that that clearly you know uh, didn't do that great of a job and um because we got trump because of the the, the foibles of the uh, the the failures of the establishment so um he's the symptom yeah you know he's a, he's a symptom and so you know even with covid even with all of this you know 
they still just barely won. They barely won against Trump. He went up to 71 million votes now. It's an incredible number. Um, and it's even found ways to get out of the demographic trap with the you know, uh, Hispanic elect, uh, uh, votes in, in South Texas and, and uh, Florida. So um, and pick up across the board. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's going to be a tough thing. It, you know, this kind of establishment, you know, hide from the online is going to uh, not be effective going forward. They're going to be attacked from both sides. Both the dissent coming out of the it's Republicans. It's already happening. It's already oh, yeah. happening. And the and the progressives are not. I wouldn't even call them progressives in the traditional sense. It's the uh, the network tribes from the left are going to eat the establishment Democrats up for lunch unless they're in power. Um, so so what does twenty twenty four look like? Ah, uh, well, you know, is it a, a, a you know, Trump will clearly if he's still you know, relatively active, maybe uh, try this again. But I do think it, like a Turk or Carlson, would probably have a better approach at running for the presidency. Yep, um, I would agree. Yeah, he seems to, you know, be able to pick up on these threads and tie them together in a more cohesive way. Um, and he'd be, you know, very effective at, at running the the right, the dissent. Um, He's a second generation weapon as opposed to the first generation prototype with a lot of rough edges. He's a second right. generation weapon, much deadlier, greater warhead, greater payload, greater accuracy. Correct. And then the, uh, on the left, you'll see the establishment try to tighten things up and try to lock things down, trying to roll back the clock to their level of control that they had uh, prior to 2016. And um, I don't think they're going to be effective at that. What we'll see is that is more of a push on the from the network tribes, and the network tribes are are pretty interesting. They're getting companies to align um, and go after people who uh, they see as as threats. So kind of the anti-fascist, the anti-racist, the anti-colonialists. Uh, surprisingly, those are those those tribes are gaining a lot of traction, and unlike traditional tribes that are formed based on you know what they're for, these tribes are formed based on what they are against. You know patterns of conduct and, and behavior and word use and etc. that form a pattern that can be opposed. And um, I saw, you know, you know, I thought initially that they would stay relatively small. You know, they really took off uh, during the COVID uh, year, uh, and uh, a lot of what the way they approach seeing the enemy or seeing the opposition as the enemy has now been adopted by the mainstream. I can't tell you how many people have called like Trump and everyone who supports him fascist or racist or whatever. It's just a, it, it, to see that kind of mainstreaming of this kind of uh, tribal mindset was uh, pretty interesting and see how fast it took, took off in the last two, three, four months uh, was pretty su surprising. So um, the way tribes end up running things uh, is that they end up forcing alignment. And what I mean by alignment is very similar to the way China goes after everybody who speaks ill of China, they force them to retract their statements and, and voice support. Um, these tribes force companies and every network 
that's online that to align with their view of the world, that they will not support people who say X, Y, Z, or employ people who do things that they oppose. And what they oppose is not just a very simple kind of, here's a racist, here's a fascist, et cetera. It's a sweeping, sprawling pattern that's growing uh, by leaps and bounds that's curated by millions and, and enforced by millions of people. Um, and getting these companies to align and enforce this ends up creating a cascade effect that could end up locking us into this you know, narrow orthodoxy of, of the way uh, we should think and act and operate. Um, that's my fear that this is like a, this is like a, a race between those who want to shut everything down and lock it into this orthodox perspective and then those who would try to uh, keep the disruption rolling. Well, that's the, see, there's a nuance there in the sense that it's not clear that the different sides or the different groups are lock it down versus allow anything. It seems like we have two different sets of tribes that want to enforce their own orthodoxy. I don't yeah. view one of these tribes as saying, yeah, you know what? We're open to a lot of different ideas. I view both of them as saying, we got a certain way we want you to think. Yeah, I mean, the, the right wing or the right wing in, in terms of uh, the way I see it is, is tribalizing too. But they'll tribalize around different patterns. So Correct. What I'm seeing is like an anti-American pattern. Here are a set of behaviors and words and, 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 and things that people do that are considered anti-American. And they'll you know, label people as such, get them fired, get them cast out of jobs, make them um, unable to communicate online, um, harass them, on and on. Just like, the, you know, we see from coming from the tribes on the left. So, so, you what, know, this, what will be the result of that? Because as you pointed out, I mean, this is, this is happening. I mean, I, I personally have predicted that Twitter will probably deplatform Trump on January 21st. Yep, me too. So what's going to happen? Uh, we, I think we've discussed briefly in our online discussion, uh, hey, you know, things like Parler, they're just not going to be able to get to scale. So what's the reaction going to be if the left-leaning tribes are able to use their leverage over the big technology companies primarily through their workforce, right? That's the mechanism right. of control there. Right. Uh, what's going to happen? Well, you know, each tribal grouping has a different method of warfare, though. It's like the left tribes have more of a moral approach, and they they do through they push more for companies to align with them and and enforce their view on the world. Meaning that the big tech companies will uh, censor and deplatform people who disagree, and you know not just off of the big communications platforms, but once you start doing that, it's off of everything that's connected to the network which is almost everything now, right? Right. You can't very well log in via Facebook if you've been kicked off Facebook. Right. Well, you're, and then you're kicked off the dating site. You're kicked off Patreon. You're kicked mm -hmm. off uh, on and on and on and on. I mean, all the you know employment sites, <laughs> you know, you can't get on Monster. You can't get on this and that. Um, it, it can be it can be like an open air prison in that regard. And it's the a, It's a the right vision. Yeah. The right wing tribes are not looking for alignment in the sense that they're looking for them to enforce platforming they want to keep the thing open to any kind of disruption possible right and and they are 
pushing the platforms to align in the sense that they won't enforce any limits. Right. So, uh, you know, if we had the, you know, international models of this, we have more like the, the way Putin runs Russia in a very chaotic, disruptive uh, approach, keeping his opposition at each other's throats. And then you have the Chinese model, which is to lock everyone down and into a consensus view and then gamify it or, or, or use online or network methods to, to ensure that everyone uh, stays attuned to that consensus. So um, I would hope that we could find a way out of this kind of tribalization and back towards the consensus dissent dynamic. And so I'm trying to you know, figure out ways to do that. Uh, <coughs> it's, it, <laughs> it's an interesting exploration, you know, come, you know, digging into these things every month and then finding new things that end up emerging two, three years down the road. But um, I find that, you know, thinking through this stuff makes you uh, a lot less anxious about what's going on. Uh, you know, when you see this stuff going on, you, you, you're like, oh, I already know, you know, how, why this works and, and how this works. And uh, yeah, it just uh, it, it makes it easier to make decisions in this kind of environment. Right. Understanding is the thing that allows you to cut through the fear of uncertainty. Correct. And again, given the fact that you have predicted the future successfully so many times before, I am definitely going to be watching this space, as they say, and hoping that you come up with some good ideas that I can help spread that will prevent these sort of darker timelines from coming true that allow us to harness the power of the networks rather than have a set of competing tribes that are locking us further and further into opposition. Right. Uh, yeah, it's uh, digging into the mechanisms that uh, make this possible um, is, a, is a rewarding process, you know, finding out what you know, empathic triggers are and, and digging into, you know, how cohesion is enhanced or, or disrupted using a online methods. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a cool exploration. It's a cool time to be alive. We're right at the point where we're being rewired uh, by the network and it's changing the way we think, you know, we think in pattern matching now and it's going to change the way society is set up um, and uh, being able to kind of see this unfold in real time is, is very cool. I mean, it might be a little unsettling, but it's also cool. So, well, it's going to happen no matter what. So, oh yeah. Uh, understanding it is, is definitely the path. Last question. And this is not, this does not require rigorous prediction. This is just basically fictional speculation. What do you think Trump does over the next four years? And does he run again in 2024? Um, well, if, if I'm looking at the potential for uh, hardcore de-Trumpification, which is being driven in part by the, the, the network tribes, is um, that he will be prosecuted and everybody who's associated with him will be prosecuted for every crime and every violation of bureaucratic norms that can be prosecuted. And, and that will tie him up to the extent uh, to the to the uh, degree that it can damage him and 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 hinder him, um, that'll make it more difficult for him to do anything other than, than 
than to focus on his court cases. Uh, he'll be deplatformed online. People who voice support for him will be deplatformed in mass. Uh, he won't be able to have, he won't have the communications mechanisms. One thing we saw in this last election is that the uh, media tribalized, uh, became very much in line with the, the tribes of the left and, and in support of the establishment. None of them asked any tough questions of Biden throughout the entire campaign. No. Nope. Zero. I mean, it was, it was amazing. They, and they buried any kind of disruptive news story and wouldn't even cover it, wouldn't even explore it. Assumed a, right from the get-go that it wasn't, it wasn't uh, real and hit it and blocked it um, and mess. And so uh, it, it's pretty clear that Trump won't get any play out, I mean, outside of Fox in a couple of the years. And even then, I think they're gonna to try to squeeze him. It looks so, like uh, Fox is starting to squeeze him. Looks like the word went out from Rupert. Right. And then the, the more aggressive stuff is like uh, creating lists. And I've seen at least dozens of people working on trying to create lists that, uh, of enemies lists of people who are in the administration, uh, who are politically connected to, to Trump to try to ensure that they are never able to uh, get a job or do anything in public life, let alone in private life. And then find ways to use that in, in uh, preventing them from being employed or, or engaged in society in the future. So, does, um, does this weaken Trump, or does it make his hold on his followers even stronger? It depends well, on how well, effective it is. Uh, you know, it, it. I think it's it could weaken him personally, but it might increase the the, the size of the uh, uh, the open source kind of reaction. Uh, if it's, if it becomes very, very effective and, and everyone who even voices anything that, you know, outside of the bounds of, of what's a deemed a appropriate discussion, um, I can't see it actually, uh, emerging. I mean, on, on alternative networks, I mean, even those could be shut down. Mm. I mean, access to transaction systems could be shut down. So, um. Yeah, it's a it's going to be a race. I mean, to see who actually get you know if if the uh, if the attempt at detrumpification and the shutdown of all dissent uh, doesn't occur forcefully enough, in, in, but just you know is aggressive enough to piss off the other side, to alienate a large group of people, uh, activate them. It's like a course uh, of antibiotics that isn't finished and followed through. Correct. It's going to come back stronger in in four years. It'll come back stronger in two years when the when the midterms are, are come through, and it will come back stronger even even more so in, in four years with a more effective leader. If Trump's leading, then it's going to be less effective. If it's more like a Tucker Carlson, it'll be a lot more effective. So let's say we're living in America still. What should we be rooting for? I'm not sure if I want to root for uh, a chilling of discussion led by the tribes of the left. But I also don't think I necessarily want to root for a resurgent alt-right led by Tucker Carlson. These two don't sound like great alternatives. Yeah, I know. You, get, you kind of get caught in the center. Uh, that's that's the thing of my – that's a uh, story of my uh, life on Twitter. I've been on forever. But because I haven't picked a side or you know just tweet exclusively in favor of one or the other, I, I go up as many people as I lose almost every day. So I've stayed relatively small in terms of the number of people who subscribe, you know, follow me. Uh, 
They Though are, I have they're, a pretty good picture. Maybe I'd be large, but they are influential and wise. Yeah, I have really amazing people. I mean, I have the best of the best or followers. Are, and, you know, I follow them, obviously, too. But um, And it hasn't hurt my Patreon at all, because that seems to be pretty strong. Well, passion, the, um, passion is more important than broad acceptance for something like that. But it's, it's amazing that if you're not aligned with one tribe or the other, that you're not, you're kind of in this limbo space. Both just trust you, right? Uh, oh, I, I, agree. I agree. Again, it is, I think that we're not exactly at the same point on the continuum necessarily, and it's not necessarily even a continuum. It's a multidimensional space. But it is absolutely the case that the two forces that are primarily arrayed against each other do not like me and are <laughs> critical of what I say, yeah. which is not yeah. a good situation, frankly. No, it's, it's, a tough, it's tough to be in the center. Of, but, you know, I, the, the reason I'm actually positioned more in the center is I think it makes me a better analyst. Mm. And so... Um, you know, it, it, it was the same kind of thing that made me a good analyst at, of the, the Iraq war and, and, and terrorism in general. Is that, I mean, I wasn't all just cheer, cheer the U.S. counterterrorism right. effort, right? I mean, I was highly critical of it. I said, if you do this, this is going to screw up or, you know, this is not going to be effective. And when, when, the, when I saw things that the terrorists could do that would be effective, I, I pointed them out to my audience, which is mostly... U.S. military and three-letter agencies, you know, to get so they can get ahead of it. And um, so it's like just being kind of this outsider, this permanent outsider. Uh, you know, we'll see if I can survive out here, though. <laughs> to me, it's not inside-outside. To me, what it is is that you are devoted to the truth as you see it and towards understanding how the world actually works. You, are not, you don't have an agenda where you're like, I want to push the world in a certain way, although you may have some preferences. You're saying, I need an accurate model of the world. I need an accurate way of understanding what's going on, and I'm going to seek that truth and insight. Yeah, that's exactly the same thing I did at, at, at Forrester. Why, you know, they were a relatively small company, and it, you know, I had $5 million in sales on my reports in the first year. So I, what I did is I just said, this is a fast moving situation. I'll give you a framework for understanding what's going on. So you're unfrozen as a decision maker. You can actually kind of put the news as it comes in into the right cubby hole. And you don't have to agree completely with my framework, but you, you know, at least it allows you to start thinking constructively about it and things are moving quickly. And it, this is a, this is what I like to do for people is just help them get their feet under them when things are moving this quickly. So they can start to think through it, think through the situation in a, in a constructive way. Well, John, as always, I've learned a lot from our conversation. I hope that the people who are listening learned as well. Before we go, maybe just one more time, let them know where they can find you and how they can subscribe, how they can have access to the insights that you have. Well, it's a Global Gorillas Report on um, uh, Patreon. Uh, it's at John Rob on Twitter. Uh, John Rob plus Patreon on Google uh, finds me pretty quickly. Um, I have some free reports up there, like weaponized social networks and others that people can read. Um, and uh, latest one was on de-Trumpification. And so, uh, yeah, if you come, uh, welcome. And uh, I think you'll find the community is pretty good. No one calls each other names, which is kind of nice. Um, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. So uh, 
it's, it's a nice place to be. Thank you again. And for those of you who are listening, this is Chris Yeh on behalf of John Robb of Global Gorillas. And I hope that you tune in for more insights in the future.